Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, great to see you here this morning. I'm Marshall. If I haven't met you, I'm one of the pastors here. And it's lovely to see all of you here today. A lot of you are too young to remember the global financial crisis of 2007 and 2008. But if you are old enough, it's one of those world events where people can often remember what they were doing when they heard about the news of Lehman Brothers in the US crashing. That then created the domino effect across the financial world that led to the GFC. Now, I don't pretend to have any expertise in economics, but I'm told that the GFC was basically a result of financial institutions outsourcing risk through something called subprime mortgages. You finance people can, can correct me um, if I'm wrong, but from what I understand, a subprime mortgage was a kind of mortgage loan when a normal mortgage wouldn't be given because the, the risk was too high uh, because of the lack of security. In other words, this was high-risk lending going on that was allowed to mushroom because of the high returns involved. And the risk was outsourced by the bank or financial institution, so they didn't have to wear the risk. High-risk lending, driven by greed for profit without regard for the consequences. It seemed too good to be true, and it was. Finally, the bubble burst and the whole financial system pretty much crashed. Now, one of the villains of the story was a financial giant in the US called Goldman Sachs. Along with a, a bunch of other huge banks, Goldman Sachs engaged in his high-risk lending for enormous profit, but then went belly up and crashed and burned. Rolling Stone magazine in 2010 described Goldman Sachs as a great vampire squid wrapped around the face of humanity. I love that quote. The injustice of the GSC was that it was the little people, though, who suffered. The people who took the risk didn't suffer, the CEOs and the executives. In Britain and the US alone, over one million houses were repossessed. Across the world, including Australia, government services were wound back and those at the bottom of the pile were the ones who had to wear the cost. Meanwhile, the people who caused the problem walked away without being held accountable. The CEOs of banks who took the risks never had to pay for their recklessness. Lloyd Blankfein, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, did take a cut in salary from $70 million in 2007 to a mere $1.1 million the next year. But Lloyd landed on his feet and is now estimated to still be a billionaire. Now, why am I telling you this slightly long-winded story? Well, I want to give an illustration of what we so often see in this world, and that is a lack of justice. Where the ones who suffer are those who are the ordinary battlers at the bottom of the pile, and those who profit are the ones who cause the misery for the battlers, and they often get away scot-free. 
And when we hear stories like that, we are rightly outraged, aren't we? Because we know in the depths of our being that justice should be done in this world. And when we see injustice, we are rightly outraged by that. Because we know that the way things should work is that the innocent should be protected from the vampires of the world. Well, that's what our story in 1 Samuel 2 is about today. It's about justice and judgment. We see injustice being done. Injustice being done by Eli's sons in the place that should have been the place of hope, the tabernacle where people went to meet with God. But we'll see that God doesn't treat Eli's sons like the CEO of a bank. He doesn't let them walk away scot-free. Instead, what we see is God's faithfulness in the way that he brings about justice, in the way that he provides for his people and he protects them against evil. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father, we thank you for this story in 1 Samuel 2. We thank you for the warning that we have about uh, Eli and Eli's sons. We thank you, Father, for what we learn about you, that you are a God of faithfulness, who even through injustice, despite injustice, you find a way to make things right. Father, we ask that you would speak to us today, challenge us and encourage us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, as Brett predicted, there are three points to my sermon today and they reflect the three groups of characters in the story. Eli's sons, Samuel and then Eli. So, let's dive in uh, to our first point, which is Eli's sons. Uh, I will have Bible verses uh, uh, on the outline so you can follow along there or you can follow in your Bible. It says in verse 12 that Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Literally, it says in the Hebrew, they did not know the Lord. They did not know the Lord. Let that sink in for a minute because that's meant to shock us. We already know that these guys, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests serving at the tabernacle. Just think about the role of a priest for a minute. We're not in the Old Testament, but from, from what you know about um, the Old Testament, uh, what, what did they do? They were the ones who stood between God and the people, right? For an Israelite, the priest was the doorway to God, in a sense. They will communicate to God uh, through prayer. They will be the doorway for people finding forgiveness as they brought sacrifices uh, to be, to be um, burnt on the altar. A priest was a doorway to the light, to hope and to God's presence. But here we're told that even the light of Israel was darkness. The word, therefore, worthless men, in verse 12, is the same word used in the book of Judges, chapter 19, for that sordid story 
of uh, the Levite and his concubine. Uh, you might remember the story, the concubine is raped and killed by worthless men. It's the same word. So the point that the author is making is that Hophni and Phinehas are on the same level as those men in Judges 19. So what was it that they did that was so bad? Well, we told it in verses 13 and 14 that the priests would send a lackey uh, to, to take some of the meat from the pot that the people brought to make sacrifices for their sins. They would take some of the meat um, unlawfully from the pot with a fork that was meant to be a sacrifice for God. Not only that, verse 15, we're told that they demanded by force the fresh meat and the fat on it before it was cooked. The reason why the fat is mentioned is that um, we directly told in Leviticus 3, verse 16, that the fat is the Lord's. The fat is to go to God. It's not meant to be eaten by the people. But that's not all. So these people were robbing God and robbing the people who brought the sacrifices, but that's not all. Verse 24, we're also told that they lay with the women serving at the entrance of the tabernacle. They were shamelessly having sex with these women who were there to serve God, in God's presence, in front of the tabernacle. So imagine in those days being a faithful Israelite who comes to the tabernacle, like Hannah that we saw in chapter 1, bringing your sacrifices, coming to pray to God. And what happens is that you're exploited by cynical, ungodly priests. You would probably be crying out to God, what are you doing, God? Where's the justice? Why are the innocent robbed and the guilty allowed to get away with it? And really not much has changed in our world since then, has it? There's nothing new under the sun. In our world, even if you're not personally affected by injustice, you read about it every day in the news. Big issue for us um, here in Sydney, of course, is, is rental prices. Renters being forced out of their homes by unscrupulous landlords hiking rents just because they can get away with it. Just this last week, our mission partners, Chandai, shared about migrants in sub-Saharan Africa, in Tunisia, being violently attacked, thrown out of their homes and dumped in the desert. Injustice is alive and well, both on our doorstep and all over the world. And it can sometimes seem like God doesn't see it. Because the guilty seem to go scot-free. The innocent continue to be oppressed, seemingly without repercussion. What are you doing, God? Where's the justice? Well, the next character to make an appearance is Samuel. 
at Shiloh, where the tabernacle, tabernacle was, while Hophni and Phinehas were robbing and cheating the people, there was someone else walking around in the background, a young boy who was probably largely unnoticed. Have a look at verse 18. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord in the tabernacle, a boy wearing a linen, linen ephod. An ephod was a particular type of robe, a, 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 a significant robe, type of robe. Jump forward to verse 28 where God is talking to Eli. No, not that one. Maybe I didn't have it, sorry. Yep, okay, I meant to put it, but there. But if you have a Bible, you can follow along. Verse 28, well, I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar to burn incense and to wear an ephod in my presence, the same word. So the priests wore ephods. It's kind of, kind of part of their uniform as priests to show that they were priests set apart by God. Now Samuel was not technically a priest. He is described as a prophet. But as one Samuel goes on, we'll see that at times Samuel did the work of a priest. But more significantly, the point the author wants to make here is that God is raising up Samuel to take the place of Hophni and Phinehas. To do the job that these guys failed to do. They failed to be a light for Israel. They failed to point the way to God. So God chose Samuel to be that light instead. And we see woven through this story a contrast between Samuel and the sons of Eli. So verse 20, Eli blessed Hannah, Samuel's mother. But then in 23 and 25, in contrast, he rebuked his sons. And then verse 21, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Verse 26, and the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favour with the Lord and with people. And that's in contrast to Eli's sons who, remember, did not know the Lord. Samuel grew up in, in the favour of the Lord. Eli's sons did not know the Lord. God is working in Samuel to prepare him to lead Israel, to save Israel. Now for the worshipper of Shiloh at this time, they may not have noticed Samuel at all. He was there in the background. He was just a kid. As they had to deal with Eli's sons, they may have continued to cry out, what are you doing, God? Where's the justice? But God had not forgotten. He had not forgotten his people. God was at work, quietly, unnoticed, preparing Samuel. And when we're crying out, what are you doing, God? We often can't see the quiet, slow ways of God. How his timing works in us, sometimes through us, sometimes completely outside of us. 
to make things right, to bring about justice. That's why the Bible talks so much about waiting patiently for God. Trust in his plans, in his timing. Well, the third character and and the one that that is given most airtime in this passage is Eli. As I've said before, um, Eli is a tragic figure. Tragic because we look at Eli and think, he's not such a bad bloke. From what what we see, he seems to genuinely want to serve God. He blesses Hannah and deals kindly with her. He seems to be the one who brings up Samuel and teaches him. And he tries to rebuke his sons for their sin. But despite all that, God is not pleased with Eli. In fact, he's going to reject him and and remove him and his sons from being priests. Why? Well, God tells us in verse 29, Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribe for my dwelling? Why do you honour your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people, Israel. There are two aspects to Eli's sin. One, he honoured his sons more than God. Secondly, he fattened himself along with his sons by what Hophni and Phinehas did when they robbed the people of their meat. So even though Eli rebuked his sons, it was a toothless rebuke. He called them out for their sin, sort of. He didn't actually name their sin, notice that. He just asked, why do you do such things? It was kind of a vague half rebuke. As a parent, I know all about that. The kind of half-hearted telling off when I'm too lazy to follow through on it. Uh, when, when my lads were young and throwing projectiles at each other or, or ripping each other's heads off, uh, I, I would sometimes be trying to focus on something really important like uh, a cricket game or a football game or some, some such urgent matter and I'd say, lads, that's enough and desperately hope they'd respond with, yes, Dad, please forgive us. We're so sorry for treating each other as we'd like to be treated ourselves. Of course, they didn't respond that way. And neither did Eli's sons. They didn't listen to him either. And Eli did nothing about it. He didn't consider the tabernacle and the sacrifices or the dignity of the women they were sleeping with He didn't consider them important enough to actually act in the way that he should have by removing his sons from the priesthood. And to make matters worse, he benefited from their injustice. He ate the meat that his sons stole from the people. As a result, God was going to act decisively. Eli failed to deal with the sin of his sons. God wasn't going to make the same mistake. 
He was going to take drastic action to root the evil out of Israel. Verse 31, he says, I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house. Verse 33, all of your descendants will die by the sword. 34, Hophni and Phinehas would die on the same day. Friends, there's a warning here for us too. Most of us aren't in too much danger of being like Hophni and Phinehas and, and, and uh, robbing people by force and uh, stuff like that. But for most of us, our sin is more subtle. It may be that we like Eli. We may genuinely want to trust in God and, and walk with him as long as it doesn't intrude on our comfort as long as we don't have to confront sin in others and in ourselves. And in our culture, a particular temptation is to not want to be seen as being judgmental, isn't it? Where we tell ourselves that it's not our business to confront sin in other people. Who am I to point the finger and so perhaps you have a Christian friend, perhaps at SWEC or, or, or another church, or maybe they've stopped going to church altogether. Maybe they're sleeping with their boyfriend or girlfriend. Or you know that they're compromising at work, engaging in ethically, ethically dodgy practices to get money out of other people. Whatever it is, you know it's wrong. But it's so easy to say to yourself, who am I to judge? It's not my place to call them out. Except that it is. Not in a harsh, judgmental way, but out of love for their sake. Because Jesus calls us to root out sin in each other and in ourselves. To start with ourselves, yes. But to root it out in each other as well. To not tolerate it. Because as this chapter reminds us, God will not tolerate sin. And that's why judgment is real. God does judge in the here and now. And ultimately he will judge evil and deal with sin when Jesus returns. I said before that talk about judgment isn't popular these days. Surely God is a God of love and forgiveness, not of punishment and judgment. Maybe you're not yet a Christian here and you're struggling with that idea of, of God condemning and judging and all that stuff. But if you're concerned about justice, and I think we all are, the idea of the innocent being protected and fairness and equity in our world, then you can't have that without judgment. Let me give you a current illustration of that. Just over a week ago, the government handed, oh, sorry, the, the Royal Commission into the robo-debt um, scandal uh, handed down its findings. It was an inquiry into a particular policy in the Department of Social Services and the Department of Human Services from 2015 to 2019. 
That policy was a program to recover welfare debt that became known as robo-debt. Now, again, I, I don't claim to know much about how it worked, but it involves something called income averaging, which averages someone's income over the financial year. Um, but it doesn't take into account someone who may not work for that whole time. Uh, a student, for example, someone who's working casually and may only work part of that year. And what it led to was for those kinds of people um, to overestimating their annual income and charging a debt that they didn't actually accrue. It turns out that this policy was grossly unfair to a lot of people, making them pay debts back to Centrelink that they didn't actually owe. At least two people, the Royal Commission heard, took their own lives as a result of the financial stress it created. Not only was it unfair, it was illegal. Government ministers and public servants were found to have deliberately misled Parliament and the Australian public. To deflect criticism of the program, the Department of Social Services deliberately fed stories to the media of so-called welfare fraudsters to deflect criticism. As these things have come to light, there's been a public outcry. People have demanded that justice be done that the perpetrators be punished and the victims be compensated. And it comes from that deep-seated belief that justice should be done. The innocent should be protected. It's the same kind of outrage that people in Eli's day must have felt as they were robbed by his sons at the tabernacle. What are you doing, God? Well, God does do something. He acts decisively against Hophni and Phinehas so that justice is done, so that the innocent are protected, so that sin is dealt with. And friends, God continues to act. The man of God who comes to warn Eli goes on to tell him that after his sons are punished, he will do something else to provide for his people. Something greater and more significant. Have a look with me, um, verse 36. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house and they, it should be he, I don't know why it's translated they in the NIV, will minister before my anointed one always. Often in the Old Testament, a prophecy has several different layers of fulfilment. And that's the case here. Sometimes there's, there's kind of a, a near fulfilment, sometimes there's three levels of fulfilment, as in the case here. Samuel is the near fulfilment. He is the priest who God raises up in the near future. As we said before, he wasn't a true priest, but he took over a lot of that priestly role from Eli and his sons. Then in the middle distance, there's a guy called Zadok. 
He replaced someone called Abiathar when Solomon became king. In 1 Kings 2, we are told that Abiathar was in the line of Eli. And that's significant because here is the judgment that God pronounces on Eli in 1 Samuel 2 being worked out over time. Abiathar is the last of that line of Eli to be taken down. He's replaced by Zadok, who serves Solomon. So, fulfilling the idea of a priest before my anointed one, before a king. Anointed one means king. But it says that he will serve the anointed one forever. So, Zadok didn't last forever. He was just an ordinary bloke who died eventually. But in the New Testament, we are told of a king who would rule forever. And in the book of Hebrews, we hear about a priest who would serve his people forever. So in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, for this reason he had to be made like them, talking about Jesus, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. That's the same language, a faithful priest, that is in 1 Samuel 2.35. Jesus is both of the people predicted, wrapped up in one. So he's both God's anointed king, but he's also the priest. Two figures wrapped up in one, and that's, the long term, that's the ultimate fulfilment of this prophecy from the man of God. And we have seen that God provides for his people. He has given us a priest who has dealt with our sin forever, all of our sin. And what Jesus did on the cross was that he brought justice, finally and completely. The wrongs of sin and evil are paid for, not by us, but he paid the penalty by his blood. And judgment has come upon the wicked and the powers of evil in this world. We don't see that worked out yet completely, do we? Uh, As we said before, we still see injustice in this world. But what the cross has guaranteed, that a day is coming when all rights will be made, sorry, all wrongs will be made right. That's guaranteed by what Jesus did on the cross. The innocent will be rescued and the guilty will be condemned. Remember last week, uh, Dom took us through Hannah's prayer. Uh, at the beginning of chapter 2, Hannah sang that God brings about this great reversal. The proud and the powerful are brought down and the poor and the weak and the innocent will be lifted up. Friends, that's a fulfilment of our world's cry for justice. And 1 Samuel 2 assures us that God is stubbornly committed to making that happen. Let's pray.
I'll get the band up as we do that. Father, we thank you so much for the promise in 1 Samuel 2 that just as you dealt decisively and thoroughly with the sin of, of Eli's sons uh, for our good, Father, you have dealt with uh, our sin, you have dealt with the powers uh, of evil, you have dealt with death, you have dealt with Satan once and for all at the cross. And because of that, Lord, we know that justice will be done at the, in the end, uh, finally and completely. Um, Father, help us to trust in that. Help us to trust in that patiently, even though uh, in this world now we don't always see justice done. Help us trust in your timing. Help us trust in your plans. Help us trust that you provide for us. In Jesus' name. Amen.